Hey y'all, I'm back. I know it's been a while, you know how I do, but this time I really do have a great excuse. I had COVID y'all, and this was the first time that I've even been sick since 2019, and the first time obviously with COVID. So all I can say about that is it totally sucked. As you probably imagined, it laid me out. And I cannot even imagine how horrible it was for all those people who got sick pre the vaccine. Anyway, I'm finally getting back into things. And although I'm still not 100% after what, like two and a half, three weeks, I am finally able to record this episode. But as you can hear, my voice is still not 100%. So bear with me. It's still a little glitchy. I may come in and out. I've already re-recorded this intro because it sounded too raspy. Um, So just hang in there and hopefully I'll be back to normal soon. That said, I am always so surprised but incredibly grateful that people continue to listen to these episodes even without new ones. Many of the cases I've talked about are still open and active, as you know, so it's super important that fresh ears continuously hear those stories. You just might be the person who can bring investigators one step closer to bringing justice to those victims and their families. So, as always, dear listeners, I thank you. So, I'm sure you've noticed the podcast has a whole new look now. I think I mentioned it in a previous episode that this was in the works. Well, it is finally here and I could not be more excited. I work with an amazing local Black woman-owned design team called Poche Design Studio, and I couldn't be happier with this podcast cover and logo. These ladies completely bodied the designs and gave me everything I wanted and everything I didn't even know I wanted. Needless to say, I'm proud of the work they produced, and I really hope you like it too. If you're a creator looking for an amazing team to create some magic for you, I left their contact information in the show notes. Do tell me what you think about this new look in the Q&A section of the Spotify app. Sorry, non-Spotify listeners, but this feature is exclusive to those listening on Spotify. So if you want to leave your opinion too, you can pop on over to Spotify or you can let me know on Instagram because I posted all about this the other day. Now, let's get into it. Today's episode takes place in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, a blackity black city on the East Coast. The year is 1993, and like so many other cities and so many other times I've said this, especially those with a large black population, there were terrible symptoms of poverty. Drugs, alcoholism, violent crime, dilapidated buildings, political and social corruption, and questionable educational options were among the headlines that splashed across the city's papers. But just like with everything else, there was a contrast to the misery. The hope for a better future existed still and shone brightly through the eyes of Philly's children. Even though the papers were filled with horrible stories, you could almost always count on a spotlight of some of the city's most innovative, creative, talented, genius, promising kids. One of those brilliant stars was Shelley Turner, 
the subject of our episode today. Shelly was one of those kids whose future you just knew would be one of those other people only dreamed about. She was already famous in the track and field world and was on the path to compete in the 1996 Olympics. Colleges were already salivating at the mouth in hopes of being the lucky school chosen by her to burn up their track. There were coaches across the country who ranked Shelly among the top female runners nationwide, and everyone held their breath in anticipation of the powerhouse they believed Shelly would become. That's why when she disappeared during her senior year of high school, the whole country talked about it. Now, this was one of those rare times when a disappeared Black girl made front page after front page. Had Shelly disappeared in our time, the story would definitely have gone viral. Shelly was right on the cusp of the next chapter of her life, and suddenly she was nowhere to be found. It seemed like everyone was invested in what happened to her and committed to help find her. News of what happened to her flooded newspapers from east to west and everywhere in between. I even found articles about Shelly in South Dakota. I mean, this girl's name was in constant circulation and dominated the nightly news in Philly. So I had no shortage of material to source about this remarkable young woman and her tragic fate. So this script is 13 pages long. This episode will be a little bit longer than usual. So get comfortable and stay a while. I'm Renetta Rideout, and this is Massage Noir Murders. On the afternoon of Friday, February 19, 1993, a man braved the 30-degree temperature to take his dog for a walk in Fairmount Park, a big, beautiful, sprawling park located near the southeast border of Pennsylvania. It's a stone's throw away from the Man Music Theater, and the Delaware River runs alongside the park, drawing a line between Pennsylvania and New Jersey. This particular part of the park is near the tennis courts and is surrounded by lush, dense trees that expand throughout the area, making it a nice place for a man and dog to stretch their legs. Something in the air snagged the dog's attention and off the path the dog went in pursuit of the new scent. The man followed behind, curious about the dog's interest, and that's when something caught his attention. Something that looked out of place. It was a stained tarp, and it looked like it was haphazardly covering something up. This is what his dog sniffed out, and as the man's brain grappled with what his eyes saw, he realized the tarp was actually covering up a body. I don't know exactly how much the man saw, but Whatever it was, it was enough for him to beeline it to a phone and call the police. Not long after that, the park was flooded with cops and the area was officially declared a crime scene. As detectives walked up to the remains, 
They could see the limbs of the person partially concealed under some shrubs and formica, which is basically a smooth, hard substance used to make laminated plastic products. Think countertops and tabletops, that sort of thing. When the detectives removed the objects covering the body, they discovered it was that of a young woman. She was wearing a lavender jumpsuit that was covered in blood. She lay on her back and her left hand was covering her face. The detectives could see that this young woman had been shot multiple times in her torso and face. By this time, the sun was beginning to set, which meant they didn't have much time to secure the scene before they lost the sunlight. So, the police got to work making sure everything was as protected as possible for the night. It was still winter and would soon be pitch black, not to mention the temperature would drop even lower, so they decided to call it quits and planned to begin anew in the morning. I'm not gonna lie, I just kind of assumed they would put up some bright lights and throw on some parkas to get the job done, but regardless, the investigation gained legs the next morning. Besides, they already knew who the victim was and they were eager to learn why. 17-year-old Shelley Turner had been so violently murdered and who was responsible. But before we get ahead of ourselves, we need to go back a month to January and the events leading up to that cold, tragic February evening. Shelley Lachey Turner, that's Shelley spelled S-H-I-L-I-E. And listen, that kept throwing me for a loop because I kept wanting to say Shelly every time I see it, but it is actually Shelly. And she was a senior at William Penn High School. She was one of the school's brightest track stars, and she was an incredibly popular student among her peers and teachers. Folks in the community and those from schools in different cities around the country knew exactly who she was. She was a celebrity due to her status as a track star. She'd even won a big fat gold medal bestowed upon her by no other than Florence Griffith Joyner herself, just to prove the point. Yeah, she was that good. And like I said before, she had the Olympics in her line of sight. But Shelley wasn't only an outstanding athlete. No, she was also an A student and a top-notch friend. Her friends and teammates particularly adored her because she was naturally funny and easygoing. Shelley was a joke-cracking, positive, incredibly focused person. She did her best to support and love on her friends like they were her family. Blythe Crawley, a fellow track mate, said that Shelley was the reason why she even came back to track after giving birth to her daughter. Shelley wasn't the type of person to give up on her friends and teammates, and she often pushed them to be the best they could be. So when she disappeared over the Martin Luther King Jr. three-day weekend, those same friends would not give up on her. In fact, they and the whole community rallied behind Shelley's mom, Vivian King, as she searched for her daughter. On Monday, January 18th, coach Tim Hickey and the William Penn track team were ready to rock and roll for the track meet that morning. But the girls' relay anchor, Shelley, wasn't there. And Really, Shelly was much more likely to be the first one ready to go, so when she wasn't there to be seen, Coach Hickey became very concerned. 
He gathered all of the kids and asked them if they'd seen her, but none of them had. That's when he decided to give Vivian a call to see if she knew where Shelly was. But he learned that even Vivian hadn't seen Shelly since the night before. She was supposed to spend the night at her best friend's house across the street. The fact that Shelly hadn't shown up for the track meet was majorly concerning. So Vivian reported Shelly missing to the Philadelphia Police Department and detectives were dispatched to her house to take her statement. The police arrived at the row house Shelly resided in with her mom, her 10-year-old sister Clara Jones, and Clara's dad, Clarence Jones. As the officers entered the family room, they could see Shelly's track accomplishments practically covered all the walls. There were ribbons, trophies, and medals, all evidence of her prowess on the track. When the officer sat down to take Vivian's statement, she told them that she last saw Shelly the night before, January 17th, and that she had plans to attend a dance with some school friends and she was supposed to spend the night across the street after the dance. Beyond that, she really couldn't provide any more information regarding Shelly's movements the previous night. Vivian did, however, give the detectives a list of Shelly's friends and classmates and provided Shelly's physical description, which was published in newspapers and read by news anchors during on-air news reports. Shelly was described as 5 feet 8 inches, light brown complexion, 110 pounds, with long black hair. Armed with a list of people to interview, detectives started with Andrea, the girl whose house Shelly was supposed to stay at the night before. Now, I'm calling her Andrea because I saw her in a documentary talking about Shelly's case, but in a newspaper article I found, it was another girl's name altogether. So for all intents and purposes, I'm going with Andrea because that's a name that is most recent and there's a face to that name. Anyway, when the detectives met Andrea, it was obvious that Andrea was shaken up about her dear friend and horribly worried about her. She was eager to give them whatever information she had that might help them find Shelly. Andrea's account of that night went like this. Shelly came over to her house just before she left for the night's planned events, but she wasn't actually going to some school dance like her mom thought. No, she was going to meet her new boyfriend, Sean Williams, to spend the evening with him. When Shelly revealed this plan to Andrea, you know, her girl clowned her a little bit about her outfit. Shelly was wearing a colorful, mostly lavender sweatsuit and a jacket that clashed horribly with it. Being the good friend Andrea was, she gave Shelly her dad's neutral black leather jacket to wear instead. After all, he wasn't using it and Shelly would be back that night, so no harm, no foul. Before leaving for the evening, Shelly promised Andrea she'd return at a decent hour because she had a track meet in the morning. With that, the girls said their goodbyes and off Shelly went to Sean's house. And that was the last time Andrea saw her. News that Shelly had a secret boyfriend her mom didn't know about piqued the investigators' interest, and they were eager to talk to him too. When they located Sean, they interviewed him for hours. During their intense conversation, Sean revealed that he and Shelly had only been officially dating for about two weeks. He was a new school transfer student and had only recently gotten acquainted with Shelly. 
He said Shelly was hard not to notice because she was so popular and had such an amazing personality. And it was basically love at first sight for him. Sean thought she was so pretty and funny and playful that he just had to get to know her more. He admired her skill on the track, and though he wasn't an athlete himself, he sometimes attended her practices just to watch her race around the track. That night, at about 8.30, Shelley rode a bus to his house in the Cambridge Mall Plaza area, just off of 10th and Gerrard Street, which was about 30 minutes east from her neighborhood. Sean picked up Shelley at the bus stop, and the two of them walked the short distance to his small apartment, where he lived with his mom, brother, sister, cousin, and niece. The two of them had a really good time together, laughing uproariously as they watched In Living Color on the TV, and talked about their past relationships. At some point during their date night, Shelley began to cry, but when Sean asked her what was wrong, she told him she just didn't feel well. In an effort to comfort her, Sean cooked something for them to munch on, but he remembered that Shelley didn't eat much. He suggested that she call her mom, and though reluctant, Shelley obliged and picked up the phone. Sean knew that Shelley made a call, but he didn't know for sure whether or not she called home, so the extent of the conversation was unknown to him. But the police would later claim that Sean told them during this interview, Shelley lied to her mom about where she was during that phone call. However, during an interview for the Philadelphia Inquirer much later, Sean was certain he didn't know that Shelley lied until he sat down with police during this interview, at which time they told him. At any rate, Sean continued with his account of what happened and that somewhere in the 1 a.m. hour, it was time for Shelly to head home. Worried about her riding the bus so late, Sean asked her if she wanted to spend the night at his place, but she declined the offer, reassuring him that she'd be just fine and reminding him that she had that meet in the morning. So the two of them walked back to the bus stop and waited for the 15 bus. Sean hopefully asked for a goodnight kiss, but that request was coyly rebuffed. There were other folks around the bus stop, and Shelley didn't want to make a spectacle of themselves in front of strangers. By now, it was about 1.30 in the morning, and shortly after they arrived, the bus pulled up. Shelley got on, paid her fare, and turned to give Sean one last megawatt smile before the bus drove off into the night. That was the last time Sean saw her. After drilling Sean for all those hours, the interview concluded, and now detectives had a strong new person to follow up with, the bus driver. They wanted to know if Shelly actually made it onto the bus, as Sean said, and if so, when and where did she get off? They were able to locate and interview the driver, who confirmed what Sean told them previously, and he added that he dropped Shelley off at the 60th and Gerard stop between 2 and 2.30 in the morning, which was about six blocks from her house. Now, Shelley being the runner she was, she would have run that short distance. In fact, if something was within walking distance, it was really within running distance for her. She didn't walk anywhere that she could run to, so she should have made it back to Andrea's house, Lickety Split. 
Since she didn't, detectives felt confident that whatever happened to her had to have occurred within those six short blocks. At that time in 1993, Philadelphia was in the throes of dealing with drug and gang activity coupled with general violence. There were abandoned houses and buildings throughout the community and several other girls had been abducted and sexually assaulted within them. So naturally, police thought maybe Shelley might have met a similar fate. So police officers from the Southwest District Precinct conducted a large search of the area for Shelley, looking in every empty building and alleyway, but they never found her. Needing to generate a new direction to follow, police went back to Shelley's family and friends to press them for more information. They started with Vivian, asking her if she knew of any enemies or people Shelley had conflict with. This is how the investigation turned to the revered William Penn track coach, Tim Hickey. Shelley was Coach Hickey's star runner, so naturally they spent a lot of time together, practicing day in and day out on the track field. Two weeks after Shelley disappeared, detectives began investigating him, but they learned that the coach actually had a rock-solid alibi the night Shelley disappeared. Turns out, he was with a group of other people who all confirmed his whereabouts, effectively crossing him off their list. Besides, Coach Hickey was just gutted about Shelly and wanted nothing more than to see her smiling face again. But something that did come up during his interview was something the police hadn't yet heard from anyone else. He told detectives that Shelly's home life was less than idyllic. According to him, Shelley previously confided that being at home made her really sad and she really preferred not being there as much as possible. You see, as busy as Shelley was being an excellent athlete, an amazing student, a big helpful sister, she was also the one responsible for everything in the house. From cooking to cleaning to taking care of her sister, she had the burden of doing all of that and still was incredibly high performing. That would make anyone pretty damn stressed out and not want to go home. And can you imagine being like that as a kid? I know how it is as an almost 40-year-old woman. I can't imagine being in high school and having all those responsibilities and the whole world on my shoulders. I'd probably be crying too. So this lifestyle of Shelley's was pretty well known among her friends and obviously the coach. Now you may be wondering where Vivian and Clarence were during all of this, but from my understanding, Clarence was kind of like just in the house. I don't know how proactive or active he was in running the household, but Vivian was a very heavy alcoholic. She spent a lot of her time drinking, and I know that she held a certification as a nursing assistant, but I wasn't able to find anything documenting that she was currently employed. So she pretty much just did whatever she wanted and depended on poor Shelley to do everything. On top of that, things between mother and daughter had become quite tense. And I'm not sure how much of this her extended family, her friends, and the coach knew about. Hey folks, listen up. I want to tell you about this amazing service called OneRep. 
One rep removes your private information from Google and more than 150 people search sites. If you've ever gone through the painstaking task of requesting for those people search sites like PeopleFinder to remove your information, then you know firsthand how sucky that is. And if you haven't done it before, then you're leaving your privacy up for grabs. Herein enters OneRep. OneRep will do all the heavy lifting for you so that you never have to bother sending in any letters of request or submitting a form online. They even send you a detailed report every month that tells you exactly how many sites your information has been found on, how many sites it has been removed from, and how many more are left to go. And here's the best part for me. You can even protect your family of up to six people by choosing one rep's family plan. This is what I use to protect my family's privacy and I could not be happier. So I want to extend this offer for you to try OneRep for yourself and get up to 60% off. You heard that right. I said 60%, not five, not 10, but 60. Take advantage of this discount and click on the link in the show notes to start securing your privacy today. Maybe like four or five months before Shelly was murdered, she was also pregnant. Yeah, and as you can imagine, a teenage pregnancy is not ideal for most people, but especially someone like Shelly. And it just made things with her mom so much more tense. Vivian was angry. She was disappointed. She, you know, pretty much went off the rails like a whole lot of black moms tend to do. And even Clarence had to step in at one point and be like, listen, this is not the end of the world. Just support her. If she wants to have the baby, cool. If she doesn't want to have the baby, then take steps to handle that. But please don't make her feel like this is the defining moment for the rest of her life. And I gotta give him credit for that. This was something that was actually documented in one of the many articles that I've read. And that was a pretty good and strong stance for him to take. And ultimately, Shelly did decide to abort her baby. So all of that was sort of going on. And so when she confided to Coach Hickey, I can only assume these are the things that she was conflicted about and struggling with. But as I said, I don't think that Coach Hickey knew about this. So to his mind, when Shelly confided these things in him, he just sort of chalked it up to typical teenage parental conflict. And being no stranger to such conflict, he didn't believe there was a major cause for concern. He just made sure he offered emotional support and tried to keep her focused on running. He went on to tell detectives that out of all the track meets Shelley competed in, Vivian had never been to any of them, but he would occasionally see her drop Shelley off to the meetup spot at McDonald's before the track meets began. With this information, detectives now had the brand new lead they were hoping for, except at that time, they really didn't have any reason to suspect that Vivian or her partner Clarence had anything to do with Shelley's disappearance. That is, until Shelley's good and loyal friend Andrea gave them reason to think again. A couple of days following the interview with Coach Hickey, 
Andrea told detectives that she saw something that really bothered her. She'd seen Clarence wearing a black leather jacket. This wouldn't normally be anything to write home about, except the fact that she recognized the jacket as her dad's jacket, as in the jacket she gave Shelly to wear the night she saw her last. Andrea went on to say that Shelly's relationship with her mom's boyfriend wasn't a close one. They basically were just roommates. So, of course, now detectives have a good reason to look more closely at Clarence. Andrea's whole statement begged the question of how Clarence ended up with Andrea's dad's jacket if Shelly never made it home that night. So they brought him in for questioning. Investigators asked Clarence about the jacket, but he said it really wasn't something he even thought about. Basically, it was cold and he grabbed the closest jacket and went on about his business. Although he seemed genuinely confused about the significance of said jacket, the detective still asked him if he had anything to do with Shelley's disappearance, to which he confidently denied any part of. Still not satisfied, detectives decided to change the subject and asked Clarence to tell his account of events on the evening of January 17th. Clarence said that he delivers newspapers beginning really early at four in the morning. So he went to bed early because he gets up so early between three and 3.15. That particular night, which was really the early morning hours of January 18th, he got up at his usual time and was indeed on the delivery route as usual. Now, detectives already knew that the bus dropped Shelly off in the two o'clock hour. And although the window of opportunity would be tight, it certainly wasn't impossible for Clarence to have intercepted Shelly and killed her. But regardless, they really didn't believe that happened. So even though he wasn't officially cleared as a suspect or person of interest, detectives moved on. Within the same couple of weeks since January 18th, Vivian did what many other parents whose kids have disappeared have done. She made every effort to keep Shelley's name in circulation by giving interviews to reporters. This was one time the media did their due diligence and pushed Shelley's story in the public's eye day after day. Everyone wanted to help amplify Vivian's voice to spread the word about Shelley. After all, she was Philly's sweetheart and everyone was invested. Hell, People even raised $6,000 in reward money for information about what might have happened to Shelly, and that did generate some new leads. However, unfortunately, none of them panned out. Even Jenny Blackwell, a city councilwoman at the time, got involved and arranged the first meeting between Vivian and Mary Mason, a popular radio show host in the area. The councilwoman called Mary to ask her if she'd be willing to share her platform with Vivian, and Mary was eager to help. So shortly after that phone call, Vivian was a guest on the show. They went through everything the police knew at the time, which really wasn't much, and discussed theories and thoughts about Shelley's whereabouts. The interview was set up in a mother-to-mother style, and at some point during the conversation, Mary mentioned the fact that as mothers, We feel things that we might hold back. So she asked Vivian if she believed Shelly just ran away or did she think Shelly was dead? Vivian responded that she believed Shelly was dead. 
that was just within the first couple of weeks since Shelley went missing. And already, Vivian had just publicly declared she believed her daughter was deceased. Something about Vivian's statement sort of rang a bell in Mary's mind. There was just something about Vivian that didn't seem to fit. She didn't come across like a devastated mother desperately searching for her daughter. Yes, she cried a little bit, but her behavior simply wasn't what Mary expected. And she thought Vivian seemed sedated, which would totally make sense. So Mary pushed those thoughts to the back of her mind. Meanwhile, Shelley's case was getting cold fast and police were no closer to finding her. Their desperation for results led them down an unorthodox path, but not completely unheard of. They enlisted the help of a psychic. I know this is quite fringe to some, but hey, desperate times call for desperate measures. They asked Vivian if she would allow them to bring the woman to her home to survey the house in hopes she'd see or feel something that could shake loose a new lead. Vivian agreed and escorted the investigators and the medium through her house. As they walked, the woman would pick up various items, inspecting them closely before placing them back where she found them. She even went so far as to lay on Shelly's bed. A little invasive? Yeah, maybe. But you do what's needed to get the job done, right? Anyway, at some point during the walkthrough, she linked arms with Vivian and told her that Shelly, quote, was in a cold place, end quote, and that she possibly had a gash or some type of wound on her left side. Now that's a pretty broad stroke, right? And so I wanna place emphasis on the possibly, since this whole thing is based on the psychic's spiritual interpretations. It kind of sounded like the woman was saying Shelley might have been stabbed or injured somehow on the left side, but really it could mean anything or nothing at all. Whatever it meant and whatever the medium felt caused her to burst into tears and repeatedly tell Vivian, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. It was at this point when Vivian basically erupted in anger and demanded that the woman and the detectives leave her house immediately. Obviously, what Vivian heard wasn't good news, and there's no telling how anyone would react to such an experience. But this was kind of a red flag to me. As a mom, I'd want to know all possibilities. I would have started asking that woman to describe everything, the environment, did she smell anything, what other senses were triggered, was there a taste in the air, anything at all. You know, you get the picture, right? But rowing the woman out? Yeah, I don't know if I would have done that, but again, no one really knows what they would or wouldn't do. But this struck me as so weird. But per the usage, I digress. Now, as much as you or I may agree or disagree with the use of a psychic, it ultimately didn't render any result other than to upset Vivian, so it was pretty much written off as a dead end. A little more than a week following that fiasco, on February 19th to be exact, Vivian decided that more publicity and community support was needed, so she organized a march the goal was to raise awareness about Shelley's disappearance and their community showed up and showed out once again. Shelley's family, neighbors, teachers, and friends 
all showed up to participate in the march through their neighborhood, and the whole event was documented by journalists and camera crews. Vivian used a megaphone to talk about Shelly and said, quote, Shelly is a beautiful girl. We want her back. I love her. I miss her. My home is lost without her, end quote. And as fate would have it, just hours following that televised march, Shelly's frozen body was found discarded in Fairmount Park. Woo, that was a lot of backfill, but now you're all caught up. So, now that Shelly's body had been found, the missing person's case was officially classified as a homicide and things really intensified from here. Vivian was called to the medical examiner's office to formally identify Shelly, and she went with her older daughter, Trina, who actually lived on her own, along with one of her good friends. The autopsy confirmed that she'd been shot five times, but it also revealed just how brutally she'd been murdered and how much she must have suffered before she died. Brace yourselves, because this is truly upsetting. I don't normally have this much detail regarding the autopsy reports, but as I said before, this case was covered extensively and reporters documented a lot of details. There was a bullet to Shelley's left hand that went straight through her chest, continuing its path of destruction through her lung, heart, and ultimately stopping in her back. The next bullet wound was found above one of Shelley's ears. The bullet went straight into her brain where it stopped. Yet another bullet entered her left cheek and broke several teeth and was lodged in her jaw. The fourth bullet went in through the back of her head on the left side and exited through the front of her head. And the fifth and final bullet went through the back of her neck and came out through her jaw. Now, this is absolutely horrendous, but as awful as all those gunshots are, that's not the worst of it. The medical examiner reported that Shelley did not die immediately from those wounds. She lay on the ground bleeding to death before she passed away. Absolutely horrible. I only hope that maybe she was unconscious. You know, I have to assume that all those shots to her head you know, I'm just praying that she she passed out. But the thought of her feeling any of that pain is just too much to even really contemplate. Anyway, the autopsy also revealed that Shelley had been beaten because there were two lacerations to her head not caused by the gunshots. But the doctor couldn't confirm whether those blows to the head rendered Shelley unconscious. Like I said, I really hope they did. The examiner also confirmed that Shelley had not been sexually assaulted because she was found fully clothed and no evidence of sperm or sexual trauma were found. And I don't know about you, but it's always a tiny, small relief when I hear that victims didn't endure that additional violation too. I know, it's small potatoes, I guess, in comparison to this type of heinous death. But I really want to believe that the lack of rape is somehow better. The autopsy report also noted that the clothes Shelley had been wearing, a Malcolm X sweatshirt, a t-shirt, and two pairs of jogging pants, looked as though they were hastily put on. 
the sweatshirt which had actually been given to her by Sean to wear before she left his house was on backwards and one of the pairs of jogging pants were in a bigger size than the other. What's more is that although Shelly was found in a wooded area of the park and everything she wore on her body was soiled, her feet were bare and clean and the two bullets that exited out of Shelly's body were nowhere to be found. Those details were very important to police because Shelly's clean feet, backward shirt, and two missing bullets strongly indicated that she'd been killed somewhere else. Couple those facts with the additional facts that she hadn't been sexually assaulted, nor had she been robbed, and now it began to look a lot more like Shelly's murderer was someone she knew. Then there was the matter of the location where she was found. Fairmount Park was just two to three miles east of Shelly's house, so the question of how she got to the park barefoot with clean feet kept circling their minds. All of this added up to their belief that Shelly had actually made it back that night, but not to Andrea's house. This only left one other option, which is that she made it to her own house that night. Now I know I said that this would be a long episode and it definitely is. So long in fact that I actually do need to cut it off here because it's taking me forever to finish editing it and I really wanted to have this episode out yesterday, February 24th, but as fate would have it, I could not get done with all the editing. And since the first half was pretty much the length of a regular episode, I decided to go ahead and cut it off and I'll give you part two of this story next. Thanks so much for listening and bearing with me. This is a Savvy Sounds production, written and produced by Renetta Rideout.